Hello and welcome to the June 15th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to giving you a quick overview of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. Among the most disruptive effects of the pandemic has been its disruption of usual in-person school for children and adolescents. The move to virtual or mixed in-person and virtual learning has an impact not only on students, but also their families, teachers, and school staff. It is imperative that we learn how to open schools safely. On June 8th, Annals published a modeling study that concluded that with moderate mitigation strategies in place, schools can reopen safely, even in settings with community transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Researchers from University of Maryland School of Medicine, Harvard University, Stanford University, and Massachusetts General Hospital used a simulation model to assess the risk for SARS-CoV-2 transmission in schools. The model considered average U.S. classroom sizes for both elementary and high schools, interactions within schools and homes, as well as those between households outside the community were incorporated. Mitigation strategies included were isolation of symptomatic individuals, quarantine of an infected individual's contacts, reduced class sizes, masks, alternative schedules, staff vaccination, and weekly asymptomatic screening. Transmission was projected among students, staff, and families after a single infection in school and over an eight-week quarter contingent on local incidents. The model showed that school transmission varied according to student age and local incidents and was substantially reduced with mitigation measures such as teacher vaccination, masking, social distancing, and asymptomatic screening. Asymptomatic screening was helpful because when infection occurred, it may be difficult to detect, as most school-aged children experience asymptomatic or mild infections. While the data suggests that reopening with careful mitigation strategies in place is safe, the authors noted that the risk for transmission was substantially higher in high schools than elementary schools. An accompanying editorial by Dr. Theodore Long from the New York City Health and Hospitals Department notes that during the pandemic, mental health emergency department visits for children aged 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 years increased approximately 24% and 31% respectively. Isolation associated with remote learning may be partially to blame. As such, Dr. Wong believes that in-person learning is one of the most powerful tools available to support children and adolescents' mental health. Dr. Long advocates the prioritization of effective interventions that permit the benefits of in-person education. Next is a brief research report that suggests that aortic valve calcification identified during lung cancer screening with low-dose computed tomography might be useful to identify individuals with aortic stenosis. Researchers from Poland studied more than 6,600 older, current, or ever smokers enrolled in a lung cancer screening program between 2016 and 2018. They prospectively identified a cutoff for a positive screen for aortic valve calcification and sent patients who screened positive for echocardiogram to look for aortic stenosis. Aortic valve calcification was present on CT scan in 13.1% of patients, and 0.5% of these had at least moderate aortic stenosis on echo. Most of the participants with aortic stenosis had been unaware of their valvular heart disease, including the 23% with severe aortic stenosis. Based on these findings, the authors believe that routine assessment for aortic valve calcification could be a useful addition to low-dose CT screening for lung cancer. 
Non-variceal upper gastrointestinal bleeding is common, morbid, and potentially fatal. Cornerstones in inpatient management include fluid resuscitation, blood transfusion, endoscopy, and initiation of proton pump inhibitor therapy, which continues in an individualized manner based on risk factors for recurrent bleeding in the outpatient setting. The International Consensus Group released guidelines on the management of non-variceal upper GI bleeding in 2019. These guidelines provide a helpful evidence-based roadmap for management of GI bleeding, but leave certain management details to the discretion of the treating physician. In the most recent Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds, two gastroenterologists consider the care of a patient with non-variceal upper GI bleeding from a peptic ulcer, specifically debating approaches to blood transfusion and endoscopy timing in the hospital, as well as the recommended duration of proton pump inhibitor therapy after discharge. Go to annals.org to read the article or watch the Grand Rounds on video and earn CME and MOC credit along the way. Next is a commentary that suggests limited and careful use of corticosteroids as one of several strategies to curtail the syndemic of mucormycoses that has recently emerged in India. Having diabetes and other conditions that compromise the immune system puts patients at risk from mucormycoses, as does receipt of immunosuppressive chemotherapy, including corticosteroids. Mortality is high, especially if diagnosis and prompt initiation of medical and surgical therapy are delayed. Currently, India has more than 65 million adults with diabetes and is experiencing a second wave of COVID-19, with 28.2 million cases reported to date. In the midst of this crisis, a syndemic of rhinoorbital cerebral mucormycosis infections has arisen, with nearly 9,000 cases reported. For those infected with SARS-CoV-2, preventing mucormycosis is critical. This means avoiding exposure to the fungus that causes the disease and limiting the use of corticosteroids and antibiotics, which have been overused in India. Glucocorticoids have no benefit in patients who do not require respiratory support, COVID-19 as they predispose them to mucormycosis and increase blood glucose levels in persons with prediabetes and diabetes, prevalent conditions in India. As such, the authors suggest that stronger restrictions on over-the-counter sales of systemic corticosteroids and antibiotics should also be considered. Many advances have occurred in the field of multiple sclerosis since Annals 2014 in the clinic review. Go to annals.org to refresh your knowledge by reading anew in the clinic review on the topic. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved seven new medications for multiple sclerosis and approved the first medication for primary progressive multiple sclerosis. The McDonald criteria for diagnosing the disease were updated in 2017. New blood tests can differentiate patients with multiple sclerosis from those with neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder and three new medications have been approved specifically for the latter disorder. Also, new medications for treating the symptoms of multiple sclerosis have been introduced. A June 8th Ideas and Opinions commentary proposes changes in asylum law in the U.S. and asylum seekers' memories about persecution are central to the legal process. Under the Real ID Act of 2005, Adjudicators are instructed to consider any possible discrepancies in an asylum applicant's verbal and written testimonies without regard to whether an inconsistency, inaccuracy, or falsehood goes to the heart of the applicant's claim. 
As a result, applicants with narrative inconsistencies, even those that may be considered peripheral or understandable given a history of trauma-related distress, often are found not credible and are denied asylum. The authors explain how this is fundamentally inconsistent with current scientific understanding of trauma-related distress and human memory. On June 9th, Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians hosted our fifth COVID-19 virtual forum. The focus of this program was the evaluation and care of patients with persistent symptoms following acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. Moderated by infectious disease expert and Annals deputy editor, Dr. Deborah Cotton, panelists included Dr. Lori Newman from the National Institutes of Health, Dr. John Brooks from the Centers for Disease Control, and Dr. Aluko Hope, who is the director of one of the first post-COVID programs at Montefiore in New York City, and now directs the post-COVID program at Oregon Health Sciences University. After brief presentations, the panelists answered questions submitted by attendees. The full recording is publicly available on annals.org. You'll also find the previous programs which focused on a variety of issues related to the COVID-19 vaccines. Population testing is essential for control of SARS-CoV-2, but evidence to understand effective strategies for surveillance and early detection is limited. An article published on June 15th evaluates the effectiveness of COVID-19 diagnostics in the setting of a rigorous, large-scale COVID-19 testing and monitoring program. The U.S. National Football League and NFL Players Association instituted a large-scale COVID-19 monitoring program involving daily testing of players and staff using two transcription polymerase chain reaction platforms, a transcription-mediated amplification platform, and antigen point-of-care tests. SARS-CoV-2 test results were compared against medically adjudicated status to evaluate performance. Cycle threshold values were described when available. 632,370 tests were administered across 11,668 individuals, identifying 270 COVID-19 cases from August 1st through November 14th, 2020. The article reports the positive predictive values of the various tests, and the authors conclude that routine RT-PCR testing allowed early detection of infection with variable performance between platforms. Cycle threshold values provided a useful guidepost for understanding the results. Antigen point-of-care testing was unable to reliably rule out infection. This large program contributes to our understanding of strategic population surveillance by providing comprehensive comparative data on SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics in a screening setting. The development of the National Institutes of Health COVID-19 treatment guidelines began in March 2020 in response to a request from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Within four days of the request, the NIH COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines Panel was established and the first meeting took place. The initial version of the guidelines was completed within two weeks and was posted online April 21, 2020. The panel comprises 57 individuals representing six government agencies, 11 professional societies, and 33 medical centers, plus two community members who have worked together to create and frequently update the guidelines based on evidence from the most recent studies. A special article in Annals describes the process and important lessons learned for responding to an unprecedented public health emergency. 
Next is a case series that suggests that a third dose of COVID-19 vaccine might increase antibody levels in organ transplant recipients who had suboptimal response to standard vaccination protocols. These findings suggest that clinical trials are warranted to determine whether booster doses should be incorporated into clinical practice for transplant patients, just as they have been for hepatitis B and influenza vaccinations. The antibody response after two doses of an mRNA vaccine against the SARS-CoV-2 virus is excellent in the general population, yet the antibody responses in transplant recipients may be markedly attenuated. In addition, reports of COVID-19 breakthrough infections in vaccinated transplant recipients have prompted interest in administrating additional doses of the vaccine. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine studied 30 organ transplant recipients who received the third dose of COVID-19 vaccine to describe antibody responses and vaccine reactions after the booster. They found that a third of the patients who had negative antibody levels and all patients who had low levels of antibody before the booster increased their antibody response after the third dose of vaccine. Self-reported reactions to the booster were relatively minor including injection site reactions, fever chills, headache, myalgia, and diarrhea. The authors could not say for sure whether one case of mild rejection was related to the vaccine, but concluded that the benefits of vaccination likely outweighed the harms. It's important to note that the study examined only antibody levels, and future studies are needed to show if those antibody levels were associated with lower infection rates in those who received a third vaccine dose. Next is a case report from researchers at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases that describes three cases of a patient with severe capillary leak syndrome or a history suggested of the syndrome who developed a life-threatening flare one to two days after COVID-19 vaccination. These events were classified as non-dose-related, unexpected, and serious adverse events according to the World Health Organization. While the authors could not rule out other causes of the patient's flares, they were unable to identify any other trigger suggesting that severe capillary leak syndrome was the culprit. As such, the researchers warned that systemic capillary leak syndrome-like events could occur in some patients after vaccinations, and clinicians should be aware of this so that they can advise patients and take proper precautions prior to vaccination. Since the first wave of COVID-19, Alternatives to conventional hospitalization have been proposed for the provision of different levels of care, ranging from shelter during quarantine to hospital-level medical care. An article published on June 15th describes the adaptation of a hotel by a hospital-at-home program to provide hospital-level care to COVID-19 patients during the first wave of COVID-19 in Barcelona, Spain. The findings suggest that medicalized hotels can be a safe alternative to conventional hospitals for the care of patients with moderate to severe COVID-19 who require monitoring and treatment but not critical care, enabling conventional hospitals to focus on the care of sicker patients. Whipple disease, a rare but serious bacterial infection, causes gastrointestinal, lymphatic, and neurologic infection and inflammation but it is so uncommonly seen in ophthalmology that it is rarely on the differential diagnosis when a patient shows ocular symptoms. Furthermore, directed molecular diagnostics for T. whippoli do not exist for ocular issues outside of research laboratories, making timely diagnosis even more challenging. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, described the case report of a 45-year-old man with gradual visual loss in both eyes and subsequent neurologic defects. 
Imaging revealed a localized mass in his brain, which prompted concerns for malignancy and an exhaustive workup using conventional diagnostics did not reveal either a malignancy or infectious etiology. The researchers report that metagenomic sequencing was conducted on a tiny volume of ocular fluid just as the patient was exhibiting progressively devastating neurologic dysfunction. The positive result directed appropriate antimicrobial therapy for Whipple's disease just in time to prevent death. According to the authors, these findings suggest that unbiased molecular testing with metagenomic sequencing can be especially helpful in situations where a patient presents with nebulous ocular symptoms and time is of the essence. Speeches by modern-day white supremacists often include statements such as Jews will not replace us. The History of Medicine article reports a 1934 incident in which the French-speaking medical interns of Montreal's Roman Catholic hospitals went on strike because they alleged a Jew had replaced a Roman Catholic French-Canadian. The authors describe how the strike buttressed the case for American and Canadian Jewish hospitals and medical schools to assure the education of Jewish doctors. This historical lesson reminds us of the importance of efforts to promote diversity and inclusion in medical education. Additional new material that we find on annals.org include on Being a Doctor essay titled Fantasies of a Wounded Healer, a graphic medicine article titled Last Human Contact in COVID-19, an inpatient notes commentary on procalcitonin in patients hospitalized for pneumonia, and annals consult guide's discussion of management of prolonged PTINR in a patient scheduled for spinal surgery, and an Annals on Call podcast episode that discusses whether the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid sepsis bundle actually improves patient outcomes. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope I've enticed you to go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.